Mansfield, Pennsylvania, Tuesday, February 24, 1874. A sports phenomenon is born as Peter and Katrina Wagner bring a son into the world. It's a boy! We think we'll call him Hannes. Okay, actually, the son was John. From the German name for John, Johannes, he would take the name Hannes. Though close friends would, don't ask me why, call him Jay. In baseball's so-called dead ball era, when pitching dominated, Hannes Wagner would electrify a baseball rabid nation in 17 seasons as shortstop for the Pittsburgh Pirates. But it wasn't his dominance on the field that would keep Wagner's name resonating a century later. All right, ladies and gentlemen, a very interesting item. In the age of persuasion, Wagner's place is here, at Christie's Auction House, New York. The artifact that drew this crowd is a baseball card, printed almost a century ago by the American Tobacco Company. In a fairly new sort of promotion, the company had distributed cards featuring Major League Baseball stars in packs of cigarettes. When Wagner objected to loaning his image to this promotion, the company stopped their run of Wagner cards, but not before some 200 had circulated. Few, if any, watching this sale could tell you much about Hannes Wagner, that he hit a career 327, that he hit 300 or better in 15 consecutive seasons, and that he won the National League batting title a record eight times. What they will tell you is that a mint condition Hannes Wagner card will fetch well into seven figures. While baseball might be a metaphor for life, Hannes Wagner has become a metaphor for modern sport. The poster boy for an era your grandparents wouldn't recognize. The passion that has, for thousands of years, attracted fans to sport has been meticulously woven into a multi-billion dollar commodity. My name is Terry O'Reilly. Strap on the pads, do a little pre-game stretch, and do not, under any circumstances, forget your protective cup. We're about to tour that place where marketing and sport collide. We'll explore the reasons why major sports are so irresistible to marketers in the era when our love of game becomes a commodity, in the age of persuasion. I want chicken, I want liver. I want a bottle of Coca-Cola, That's us! Gracie made the ball! Hey, great, a toothpaste should fight cabbage. I can't believe I ate that all. Sinclair Six Transistor Big Reception Radio. Terry O'Reilly and the Age of Persuasion. There you go again. On May 5th, 1989, a month after Field of Dreams opened in theaters, a car pulled into the driveway of a farm near Dyersville, Iowa, some 20 miles east of the Mississippi. A traveler driving from New York to California, just had to stop by and see the field where the movie had been shot. If you build it, he will come. Nowadays, some 60,000 people make that same pilgrimage every year. But until recently, 
those visitors were met with two signs. One beckoned them to the Field of Dreams movie site run by the Lansing family. The other to the Left and Center Field of Dreams run by Rita Amiskamp. Turns out the famous baseball diamond straddled two properties. The Lansings, they learned, owned the house, most of the infield, and right field. Ms. Amiskamp owned left and center field, and much of the cornfield, whence came all the vitally challenged baseball players. And both families wanted a piece of the action. Signs warned visitors that baseball equipment rented on the Amiskamp concession could not be used on the Lansing part of the field. In the tradition of classic films of the past, Pride of the Yankees, Newt Rockney All-American, Hoosiers, and Chariots of Fire, Field of Dreams looked at sport through the rosiest colored glasses it could find. Yet, in the world of Lansings and Amiskamps, even Hollywood couldn't ignore the changing face of sport in the age of persuasion. Here it is. Show me the money. <laughs> Among sports movies, if Field of Dreams was a Dr. Jekyll, Jerry Maguire is the Mr. Hyde, performing its own sort of storytelling miracle finding a heart in a modern sports agent. It's what I do. I will not rest until I have you holding a Coke, wearing your own shoe, playing a Sega game, featuring you while singing your own song in a new commercial starring you, broadcast during the Super Bowl in a game that you are winning. And I will not sleep until that happens. It's what I do best. Give me 15 minutes to call me back. And so swings the pendulum of popular culture, from perception... ...to reality. Can you sign my card? Yeah, I'm sorry, little fella. I can't sign this particular brand of card. Only Pro Jam Blue Dot cards. To understand major sport today, you might head here to the epicenter of modern sports marketing, the offices of IMG, International Management Group of Cleveland, Ohio. The model for Sports Management International, the fictitious sports firm of Jerry Maguire. It's here that the word sports and marketing were forever welded together. You don't want to be LeBron James. Hard as it is to believe, there really was a time when sports and marketing slept in separate beds. A time when owners informed players of their salaries. A time when endorsement money really was chump change. And when Nike was a half-remembered answer on a grade 12 history Greek mythology exam. I am LeBron James. You don't want to be me. You want to be better than me. That would all change in the 1920s, the same time radio began to revolutionize mass marketing. But in this case, it wasn't advertisers, but an athlete who came a courtin. In 1925, American football was agog over one Howard Edward Red Grange of Forksville, Pennsylvania an all-American running back at Illinois State. For those who do not speak sports, we offer this simultaneous translation. He built a reputation as the best broken field runner in the game. On October 18th... So during some important game against a major rival, he did lots of good plays, got his team lots of points, 
blah, blah, blah. Grange had scored Everyone got excited and saddled him with one of those goofy nicknames sports people love. The Galloping Ghost. Among his admirers was entrepreneur C.C. Cash and Carey Pyle, a theater owner and promoter from Champaign, Illinois. Grange packed him in and revitalized the sport. Pyle made them pay. In 1925, Grange signed with the Chicago Bears for a minimum $100,000 per season, 75 times the average salary that year. It didn't stop there. Pyle arranged for a starring role for Grange in Hollywood B Pictures and toured him in exhibition games, scooping hundreds of thousands of dollars beyond his pro salary. Pyle became the great alchemist, transforming fan adoration into small mountains of cash. It afforded Babe Ruth a famous retort. When told that his $80,000 a year salary was higher than that of President Hoover, the Babe replied, I had a better year. Fast forward some three decades. From heaven. By late 1960, Arnold Palmer had won the U.S. Open and had twice won the Masters. Given that the entire golf world was studying his grip, it's remarkable how few noted the handshake he offered Mark McCormick, who was about to pick up where C.C. Pyle had left off. Arnold Palmer, the biggest name in golf, was open for business. Whenever there's a golf championship at stake, you know, Arnold Palmer will be in there all the way. Arnold Palmer, back home in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Here's a man who really likes to smoke. We use Pennzoil, and I think that old track. When McCormick found him, Palmer had a $5,000 a year deal with a sporting goods firm. Four decades later, Palmer's holdings are reckoned to be north of $200 million. From clothing lines to corporate holdings. Some people think women don't know anything about cars. But some of us know as much as men. Even a TV spot with Jamie Lee Curtis and, wait for it, O.J. Simpson. Let's see what the guys know. The T-Bird has two doors. The Continental has four doors. The T-Bird is $39.90 a day at Hertz. The Continental is $44.90. I rest my case. Do you think they'll renew our contracts? Two years before his famous handshake, Mark McCormick was a promising golfer himself. He qualified for the 1958 U.S. Open, but unlike Arnold Palmer, didn't make the cut. As the very model of a modern sports agent, he pioneered the tactic of refusing to speak first in negotiations. His silence, of course, intimidated others into talking, and the more they talked, the more money they'd shovel into the pockets of McCormick's clients. The king of the 18-hour day Mark the Shark, wrote S.L. Price in Sports Illustrated, scheduled playtime with his children and planned casual phone calls months in advance. By the 70s, S.I. dubbed him the most powerful man in golf. By the 80s, the most powerful man in tennis. By the turn of the century, they gave up and tossed him the title most powerful man in sports. For a half century, Mark McCormick taught pro sport how to translate its appeal into money. 
he also defined the plateau that separated sports stars from superstars. Stars dominated their game. Superstars dominated popular culture. The difference today is worth tens of millions of dollars a year. But the skill set requires a set of muscles many athletes never knew they had. My name is Terry O'Reilly, and this is the Age of Persuasion. Why do sports and sports stars work so well in advertising? In his book, Celebrity, the first letter being a dollar sign, ad giant George Lois writes, a celebrity can add almost instant style, atmosphere, feeling, and or meaning to any place, product, or situation unlike any other advertising symbol. Sport is the last great unscripted entertainment left on the planet. It provides real-time spontaneity long since sucked out of TV, even reality TV. Spontaneity long absent from popular music, film, and the internet. And long, long gone from politics. Sport writes its own stories, on its own schedule. And so often, it culminates in moments no creative mind could conceive. A home run for Gibson, and the Dodgers have won the game 5-4. to four. I don't believe what I just saw. Here's another shot, right by the start. Ooh, you hear that? That's my wife and me screaming in that crowd. Okay, Keith. The Blue Jays are World Series no film, no book, no TV show can equal the power of sport to make people remember where they were or what they were doing when. Touch them all, Joe. You'll never hit a bigger home run in your life. Joe Lewis defeating Max Schmeling. The Fog Bowl, the Immaculate Reception, the Rocket, well, any night. Sport offers the chance of failure, elation, and the unexpected, including once-in-a-lifetime moments that every fan covets. The People all say that I've had a bad break. Though even reality isn't immune to a good old-fashioned Hollywood rewrite. For instance, Gary Cooper's rendition of Lou Gehrig's farewell speech at Yankee Stadium. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. In the lesser-known, real-life Lou Gehrig version... For the past two weeks... You've been reading about a bad break. The signature line is up front. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. And bereft of a musical score by Lee Harlan. These rare moments, unique to sport, can't be bought. And uh, he's picked out a landing spot that is a good 25 feet above the hole. Though on rare occasions... They can be rented. Even the most casual golf fan knows the legend of Tiger Woods on 16 at the 2005 Masters. His chip shot from the fringe landed some seven meters from the hole, rolled downhill forever, Oh my goodness! stopped at the lip of the cup, then... Oh, wow! What did Nike do? They slapped their logo on the clip 
and ran it as a commercial. In your life have you seen anything like that? Most would agree the superstar athletes who make so many of these moments have a certain je ne sais quoi. Literally, I don't know what. But they're wrong. In my game, it's about je sais quoi. We know exactly what separates the star from the superstar. True story. A few years back, I'm in Florida to record a radio campaign with Roger Clemens, then with the Toronto Blue Jays. We have to record in a bunker-like basement at the training facility, where the sound bounced badly off the walls. So I asked my recording engineer to rig a tent using special sound blankets to eliminate the echo. Roger, who's a big guy, squeezed himself into the tent, sat on a small chair all hunched over, and waited for my cue to read. I counted three, two, one, and right on cue, the tent collapsed. All I can think is that a $35 million Cy Young winner is flapping like a mackerel beneath four blankets. And I learned that, thank goodness, Mr. Clemens has a sense of humor. Which is why today I do not have a 95 mile an hour fastball lodged in my ear. Can you believe all the times I've been to Toronto and the boys and I have never been up the CN Tower? This is real-time four-wheel drive. Yeah. It only kicks in when you really need it. Like when you're driving down the CN Tower? Yes, sir. That would be a good time. Granted, he's no on-air savant, and he knows it. Yet, he was a pleasure to work with. And what fascinated me was the work ethic he brought to the session, and the hands-on interest he took in what the spot would sound like. Mickey knows he has to have orange juice with its vitamin C and energy to play his best ball. A far cry from olden days, when disengaged sports idols read stale copy off cue cards. I have to have orange juice with its vitamin C and energy to play my best ball. And I need it every day because they say the body can't store vitamin C. Maris is ready. Here's the pitch. It's going, going, it's in there. A new Major League record. 61 home runs by Roger Maris. Hi kids, that sure was a day for me. Part of the thrill of baseball. The kind of real excitement I've put into my great new game by Pressman, Action Baseball. When Mark McCormick discovered Arnold Palmer, he identified and exploited character traits many star athletes seemed to lack. Palmer's aw shucks farm boy demeanor, his affability, and the way he wore emotions on his sleeve. McCormick pitched Palmer as a marketing partner, where the Roger Marises of the world were treated as props. Yes, kids. There's nothing like the thrill of baseball, and now it's yours. Our company has worked with so many sports legends, from Johnny Bauer, Elvis Stoiko, Gretzky, Orr, and Crosby, and Mike Weir, to the wonderful, hilarious Boom Boom Jeffreyon. Terry? Yes, Keith? You're dropping some names there. Oh, am I? I've learned that the key to using a star athlete to pitch a product should be based on at least one of four criteria. One, an unusual strong personality or voice. Two, a presence that will lend big-time attention to a low-interest product. Three, a strong natural connection to a product. 
like ooh, Steve Nash for Nike. The passion and the appreciation for the finer points of soccer easily translated to basketball. And fourth, the exact opposite. This commercial will prove to the women of America that beauty Miss Pantyhose can make any legs look like a million dollars. A striking disconnect between athlete and product, such as Joe Namath's famous appearance wearing beauty Miss Pantyhose. Now, I don't wear pantyhose, but if beauty Miss can make my legs look good, imagine what they'll do for yours. <laughs> but what about the villains of sport? I'm Pete Rose, and I'm convinced Grecian formula helps me play younger. Yeah, play younger. When I started getting gray, I felt sort of out of shape. Gray hair can sure change how a guy feels about himself. Old Charlie Hustle was the darling of baseball until a betting scandal moved him to the license plate manufacturing business. Gone are the days when Pete Rose could sing for his supper. There's something about an Allegation was enough to relegate Barry Bonds to the marketing doghouse where the only thing he'd say into a microphone is, talk to my lawyer. But unlike the days of Mickey, Arnie, and Roger Maris, today's sports marketers are finding wonderful niches for some of the less squeaky clean characters in sport. Witness this great anti-hero vehicle for Nike, with basketball's notorious, outspoken Sir Charles Barkley. I am not a role model. I'm not paid to be a role model. I'm paid to wreak havoc on the basketball court. Parents should be role models. Just because I dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kids. For marketers not wanting to risk their reputation backing an athlete who might like Rose or Bonds or O.J., fall out of public favor, or those like Bo Jackson, whose career might end like that, due to injury. Wow, I'm Samantha Stevens. Many find long-term success by taking one of two routes, either by choosing to ink a deal with an older athlete whose chances of doing something scandalous are slim to none, or by sponsoring a team, or even a pro league, which is why any pro franchise worth its salt has an official deodorant, official soup, official couriers, vehicles, beers, and HD TVs. How come? If you'll turn to your copy of the Winter 2000 edition of the Journal of Advertising... Got it? Good. Robert Madrigal suggests that fans of a given team take behavioral cues from fellow fans and that fans might feel more inclined to purchase a given brand when that brand is identified with their team. Especially if they believe that a positive purchase intention may be the norm among their tribe. You wouldn't kid me, Rock. Oh, it's on the level. And with teams, like star athletes, the older and more storied they become, the greater their value to advertisers. To sponsor a team is to associate your brand with the storied moments and players of its past. Someday when the team's up against it, breaks are beating the boys, ask them to go in there with all they've got and win just one for the kipper. Well, hockey experts are already calling Eric Lindros the next great one, but the 18-year-old's reputation is anything but great in Quebec. 
He says he won't play for the Quebec Nordique, the NHL team that drafted him this summer. Today, star athletes, some feel, can only flourish in key markets. Hence, Eric Lindros refusing to sign with the Quebec Nordique, which, some say, may have helped drive the franchise to Colorado. A me-first attitude which, ironically, tarnished his value as a pitchman. His agent says he'd do far better in endorsements in Toronto or the States. Today, superstar athletes tend to learn from the Lindros faux pas. Who are the superstars of sport today? A good litmus test is to gauge how well they're known outside their game. Stars excel on the ice, on the field, the slopes, or the track. Superstars excel in People magazine. Tiger, Crosby, Beckham, Nash, members of a very exclusive club, whose gifts away from their game, as public figures, will make them more through endorsements than they'll ever earn playing. We can't all be heroes, wrote Will Rogers. Somebody has to sit on the curb and clap as they go by. Sport will always be revered because it's about incredible human achievement. Unlike so much Hollywood celebrity, which is often about hype and not talent. We all grow up playing sports. We know how difficult it is to succeed. So when we see a sports hero make a journey of tests, it inspires an awe that begins in our childhoods and resonates throughout our lives. Like Babe Ruth pointing to the stands and hammering a clutch home run in the 32 World Series. Or Muhammad Ali regaining his title from Foreman against all odds. Or, for me, watching Bobby Orr sail through the air as he scored the Stanley Cup winning goal in 1970. Marketers understand the power of that bond. So attaching their company to a sports star is like renting a shortcut to our hearts. And if a little stardust falls onto their products, so be it. As for star athletes whose unscripted, near-superhuman skills dominate their game, they must read the script and adopt the role cast them by agents, advertisers, and ultimately the fans if they're to make the leap from good to God in the Age of Persuasion. The Age of Persuasion is created and written by Terry O'Reilly and Mike Tennant, either of whom can outscore Tiger Woods, Arnold Palmer, and Vijay Singh combined. High score is good, right? Right? Engineer Keith Oman, who will not rest until wine tasting takes its rightful place among Olympic sports. Title theme by Ari Posner and Ian Lefevre. Men equally adept at playing on a team or playing with themselves. The Age of Persuasion is produced for CBC Radio by Pirate Toronto.